Welcome back to the Dirt Show. Today, Justice Clarence Thomas issued a temporary stay, to emphasize that it's temporary, against a grand jury compelling Senator Lindsey Graham to testify about calls that he may have made to uh, authorities in Georgia uh, regarding counting the vote and other things relating to the election. Um, Senator Graham claims that he has the right not to be questioned about these and other issues because of his role as a United States senator, and he invokes Section 6 of Article 1 of the Constitution. So let me read you that, and then we'll discuss whether it applies and whether Senator Graham is likely to be able to turn this day from a temporary one into a permanent one. So the Constitution says that um, members of the Senate and representatives shall in all cases except treason, and we're not involved with that now, felony or breach of the peace, be privileged from arrest during their attendance at the session of the respective houses, that seems clear, while they're in the house itself, uh, or in going and returning from the same, that is on the trip back and forth. I think, I think it was um, Congressman Kennedy who was arrested on the way to Congress or way out of Congress for, I don't remember, drinking perhaps, and that issue arose in that case. And then here's the critical language. And for any speech or debate in either house, they shall not be questioned in any other place. Now, the literal language of this constitutional provision does not protect Senator uh, Graham. Uh, he's not being questioned about a speech he made uh, in the House. He's not being arrested. Um, he's being questioned by a grand jury about conversations he had with officials, both with President, then President Donald Trump, and with um, members of the administration in, in, in Georgia. But uh, the Supreme Court and other courts have expanded the definition of be questioned in any other place about any speech to deal with any kind of legitimate congressional business. Much of congressional business today is conducted uh, not on the floor of the Senate or the House, but outside. There are hearings, there is attempt to get information, and Senator Graham claims that what he was doing was part of his job. He was uh, chairman of the Judiciary Committee at the time. Uh, he was a prominent uh, member of the Senate with a lot of influence, and he said he was basically trying to get information about whether we need to reform the laws regarding elections, a plausible claim. Um, so the question is, would these provisions of the Constitution uh, be subject to expansion, not only just beyond the technical debate or uh, speech in either house, but to this kind of a conversation? The lower court said basically, no, uh, he may be able to refuse to answer some questions, but he certainly should be required to answer other questions. Um, there may be also claims of executive privilege as well if he had conversations with, with President Trump. 
But the question the courts are going to have to decide is whether what he was doing was more in the nature of political activities designed perhaps to uh, prevent the election of um, uh, now President Biden and to maintain the status of having uh, then President Trump remain in office. These conversations occurred after the election, but before the uh, January 6th events where the uh, Congress confirmed that uh, Biden was elected president. So it's going to be an interesting it's going to be an interesting issue. And nobody knows how the court will come out. Justice uh, Thomas basically said, look, this is an important enough issue that let's not let the cat out of the bag because you can't put it back in. Let's delay anything that has to be done because there doesn't be any rush here. And let's let the rest of the Supreme Court decide this question. One is inclined to think that Justice Thomas may be in favor of the position taken by um, by Senator uh, Lindsey Graham, but we're not even sure of that. But then the question is, what about the other justices? They've generally not been sympathetic to intruding onto the business of congressional committees and of grand juries. So there's no way of really knowing how this will be resolved. It's so interesting that the Constitution provides immunity only for one branch of the government, only for the legislative branch. There is no comparable provision for the president. There's no comparable provision for the judiciary. The courts, however, have created exemptions. Um, the executive privilege is an exemption. It, it says that a president needn't uh, testify about privileged material, which he discussed with his staff members or, or others. Um, that's a totally judicially created uh, exec exception. There's one that's even more, more uh, questionable, and that is judges created an exception for themselves. Um, they said, we can't be questioned. We can't be uh, held responsible. We can't be inquired into for anything we did relating to our judicial office. The case that led to that was the most extreme case imaginable. There was a judge in the Southern state who, I hope I have the facts right, it's it's gonna be close. I haven't reread the case for purposes of this discussion. I haven't read it in many years, but my memory is still pretty good about these cases. So there was a father of a young girl, I don't remember, 15 or 16 years old, uh, who was having sex with uh, somebody else her own age. The father was frightened about that, that she'd become pregnant. So the father went to his friend, a judge, and said, why don't we make sure that she can't get pregnant? We will authorize something to be done to her, an operation whereby her tubes are tied and she won't be able to have children pretty extreme form of, of birth control, but we won't tell her. That's what we're doing. We'll just tell her she's having her appendix removed. And the judge, corrupt as could be, went along with that and, and issued an order allowing the father to bring the girl into a hospital to have this fake operation. And she had the operation. She thought her appendix was removed. Then, as is often typical, she didn't continue 
with this young man. And eventually she married somebody, apparently a very decent guy, and they had a good marriage and they tried to have children. She discovered she couldn't have children. She went to the doctor and said, why can't I have children? The doctor said, well, well, don't you know you had an operation some years ago in which your tooth were tied? You, you can never have children. Well, she was shocked. She didn't know anything uh, about that. And so a lawsuit was brought against the judge. And believe it or not, the courts held, no, 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 this was a judge acting in his judicial capacity. He wasn't even acting in his judicial capacity. He was just doing a favor for a father, a deeply immoral favor. But the courts upheld it, and they've upheld the most extreme claims of judicial immunity. Not a word about it in the Constitution. Not a word. And so these kinds of immunities have now applied to each of the three branches of government. One is rooted in the Constitution with fairly specific language. Um, the other two are just total inventions of the judiciary granting the president certain privileges and granting themselves these massive privileges, which really prevent anything from happening uh, to a judge. Judges really above the law and judges have placed themselves above the law. Everybody always says in America, nobody's above the law. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Judges are above the law. Um, and and both state and, and federal judges when it comes to this kind of immunity. Now, you, you might say, logically, judges should have some immunity. They shouldn't be able to sued for write, be sued for writing an opinion against a, a litigant. Of course not. But there should be limits uh, to that. And the case that gave rise to this judicial immunity seems very, very clearly to have exceeded any logical limits, but judges will lean over backwards to protect themselves and uh, very self-serving, but that's the way the law is today. Right now, we have no challenges to judicial immunity, but the challenges are to both executive and legislative immunity, executive immunity, completely creation of the court, but rooted in the constitution in the sense that obviously a president to perform his duties uh, has to be able to confer with members of his cabinet, members of his White House staff, and in order to be able to confer confidentially, you would think there would have to be some degree of privilege. Now, of course, the Democrats are coming in and saying in a very foolish and very, very short-sighted way, oh, yeah, but the current president, President Biden, who's a Democrat, can refuse to accept the executive privilege claims of the previous President Trump, who was a Republican. That would, of course, destroy any privilege at all, because nobody is ever going to confide in a staff member, knowing that two years hence, three years hence, a president from the other party can say, nope, whoops, whatever you said uh, will, be made, will be made public. So we're going to see a lot of litigation on, on that issue, obviously. Uh, the president has now been subpoenaed. The former President Trump has been subpoenaed. And um, he's going to claim executive privilege. That case may very well be mooted by the election in November. If the Republicans win the House, as they are predicted, only slightly, but predicted to do, they will immediately disband the January 6th committee and perhaps create a committee of their own, which will be as biased and do as much damage. But in any event, the January 6th committee will be abolished and their subpoena power will end 
And so as long as President Trump can push, kick the can forward till um, uh, January, uh, he's probably not going to have to testify because all he has to do is go to court and say uh, executive privilege. Let's have a case. Let's have a hearing. Both sides will be given an opportunity to write briefs and the decision would probably not be rendered for weeks, perhaps months. So it's unlikely that we'll ever see an actual conflict between the executive um, branch and the legislative branch over Trump's testimony, although it's possible it could occur. They may be able to expedite the hearings and then there might be uh, a conflict. We'll, we'll wait and see. But there is a conflict within um, the legislative branch and the executive branch, because as I said, the Supreme Court has construed the constitutional provisions of, of Section 6 more broadly than the language. The language is very, very narrow. Um, and of course, even that language <laughs> has, has given wise, rise to, to massive protections. There was a case some years ago during the debate over slavery in anticipation of the Civil War, where a congressman, I think also from South Carolina, that's where, of course, Senator Graham is from, uh, didn't like something that a senator from Massachusetts was saying. So we went over at him with a very heavy cane and he beat him nearly to death on the floor of the Senate, right on the floor of the Senate. He caused permanent damage to his brain. Um, and of course, Senator was never prosecuted. Uh, I, I don't think that counts as speech or debate in the House. You know, you can you can move your hands, but you can't hit people. That's not part of the speech and debate clause. And it also exempts um, um, felonies or breach of the peace. Now, <laughs> that would clearly qualify as a breach of the peace and uh, as a felony. Uh, assault with a deadly weapon is obviously a felony. And so, you know, we've seen interpretations of these provisions that have gone well beyond the language. Much of the Constitution today, of the meaning of the Constitution, goes beyond the language of the Constitution. Um, Congress will make no law respecting an establishment of religion. What does that mean? Probably it was tended simply to mean that Congress shall not recognize um, congregationalism or baptism as the official religion of the United States, but it's been construed much more broadly to uh, prevent uh, Congress and the states from preferring religion over non-religion or preferring one religion over another interpretation, which um, on policy grounds I approve of uh, completely, but in terms of how you construe and define the Constitution as an originalist, that requires uh, a stretch. So do so many other provisions of the of the Constitution. Uh, you know, people ask me all the time, is the Constitution a living document or as Justice Scalia liked to provocatively say, is it a dead document? And the answer, of course, it's parts of it are dead. You have to be 35 to be president. Um, parts of it are living, equal protection, due process, cruel and unusual punishment. These cry out for interpretation, and they obviously change uh, with time. Um, the Fourth Amendment, the right of the people to be secure in their 
persons in houses. How does that apply to GPSs that are placed under somebody's car? Well, Justice Scalia wrote an opinion saying if the framers knew about GPSs, they would probably say you need a warrant to put one under the car. I mean, that, you know, who knows what the framers would have said. Framers never thought of anything like this. So, so uh, it, it's hard to know. So let's get back to uh, Lindsey Graham. Uh, they want to ask Lindsey Graham a bunch of different questions. This is a grand jury investigating the possibility of crimes having been committed by people uh, in the Trump camp um, uh, when they tried to get uh, people in, in Georgia, uh, particularly, to um, uh, not count write-in ballots from certain areas because the signatures weren't accurate. Or remember this famous phone call from, from, the, from President Trump uh, to this, I think it was the Secretary of State, saying, I need you to find me enough votes to turn around the election. Of course, that's subject to uh, two plausible interpretations. Find can mean look hard and discover um, that would not be a crime, or it could mean invent, which obviously um, raises much more serious problems if a candidate for office tells the person who's in charge of the votes, I want you to invent votes. I want you to create votes. That's very different than I want you to look hard to see if there are actually are votes that haven't been counted. And um, the word find me can be interpreted either way. So I don't think we're going to see a criminal prosecution growing out of that. But that doesn't mean we won't have grand jury hearings. We won't have subpoenas. Uh, we won't have perhaps depositions. We'll probably learn a lot more about the circumstances of that call and other calls and other efforts by people in the Trump camp to undo what I believe was a perfectly fair democratic election, which resulted in the presidency being taken from Donald Trump and given to Joe Biden fairly democratically and within the rule of law. But we're going to see these kinds of hearings go forward. And in the end, here's my prediction. I always make predictions and I'm always right. No, no, I'm not always right, but I'm almost always right. Always right. Close. But um, um, I'm right the vast majority of times. So Here's my prediction. Uh, the courts will not give him blanket immunity. They will say you have to go in front of the grand jury and will decide question by question what you can be asked about. And if it's a purely political question, then you're going to have to answer. If it's a question that relates to your legislative business, then probably you won't have to answer. But you're going to have to answer some questions. And that may also be the way that the Banyan case and the other cases involving subpoenas may be decided. The courts may decide, look, uh, Bannon and the others uh, may have had a right to claim executive privilege, but they should have either gone to court to seek to vindicate that right or gone in front of the legislative committee and selectively refused to answer questions. That's one possible Ground. I think the better ground for the court would be to decide Congress has no power to enforce its subpoenas without going to court first. That if you want to enforce a subpoena, you don't go to the Justice Department. You go to court and you say, look, we've subpoenaed Bannon. Bannon is going to claim executive privilege. We want you to decide whether executive privilege applies. And if it doesn't, we want you to order him to answer questions. At that point, he'd have no defense. 
uh, he could appeal, but he'd have no defense. Uh, and he'd have to answer the questions much the way Bill Clinton had to answer questions during his deposition in the Paula Jones case, nine to nothing decision, which I think was wrongly decided by a unanimous Supreme Court, not on the ground that the president shouldn't answer questions, but on the ground that president should not have to be deposed in civil cases while they're trying to run the country on behalf of the United States. I think it was an ill-advised decision, but as I said, nine to nothing. So we'll see what the Supreme Court decides in the, in the, uh, uh, case involving uh, Senator Graham. Again, I think they're going to split the difference, and I think they're going to make him answer some questions and permit him not to answer other questions. And, you know, maybe they'll just deny review and allow the lower court decision to stand and subject to appeals. Um, but um, I don't think they're going to give a total bar to a grand jury asking relevant questions. Remember, too, this is not the January 6th committee, there are real challenges to the January 6th committee beyond privileges. I mean, a committee that consists of only Democrats and two anti-Trump Republicans, uh, all picked by the Democrats, essentially, uh, a one-sided kangaroo committee that never heard the other side of the issue, that uh, doctored tapes by eliminating uh, Trump's words patriotically and peacefully when it came to the January 6th terrible speech that he made, but at least the terrible speech should have been presented in whole, or at least without leaving out substantial parts. I may have a bias on this because that's what CNN did to me. They doctored my tape and had uh, eliminated the words um, uh, unlawful, illegal, and corrupt, and then had their commentators say, Dershowitz says that a president can do anything illegal, unlawful, and corrupt after they've doctored the tape to eliminate the words illegal, unlawful, and corrupt, where I said he couldn't do anything like that. So um, I have a bias about uh, uh, anybody uh, doctoring tapes, whether it be a congressional committee or CNN. So stay tuned. Um, we may hear something fairly quickly from the Supreme Court on the, on the Senator Graham uh, case, uh, or it may take a little bit of time, but it will be at least an answer to some of the hard questions as to how much, how much immunity a member of Congress has or a president has from answering questions from a grand jury or from a congressional committee. Okay, let's go to some questions. Professor, if a president was impeached by the House and convicted in the Senate, but the grounds on which he were impeached was not constitutional, could the president appeals conviction to the Supreme Court? Well, I wrote a whole chapter in a book about that. And the answer is clear. It's clear as could be. Nobody knows. That's the answer. Nobody knows. Two justices of the Supreme Court, Justices White and Souter, if my memory serves me correctly, uh, implied that that case could go to the Supreme Court. Um, other justices have not commented on it. There's nothing in the Constitution uh, that says that, but Marbury versus Madison says that every act of Congress is subject to review by the Supreme Court for constitutionality. So, for example, give you the extreme case. Let's assume the House impeaches a president. Uh, let's assume it's Biden on the grounds of maladministration. Could happen if the Republicans take over the House. Maladministration. And then a Republican Senate convicts him of maladministration. The reason I use that as an example is 
the framers explicitly rejected that word. A member of the Constitutional Convention said, I want to see the word maladministration as a ground for impeachment. And Madison said, no, that would be wrong. That would turn us into a British um, um, parliamentary system. And, and then the person withdrew it and said, oh, sorry, no, 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 maladministration is no good. So let's assume they impeach him on the grounds of maladministration. I think in that case, the Supreme Court would review it and say, no, the Constitution says treason, bribery, other high crimes and misdemeanors, and it explicitly rejected maladministration. There'd at least be a couple of justices uh, who would now support review of that. And I think the case would be would be reviewed by the Supreme Court. On the other hand, if it's a close case, <clears throat> if it's a case where, say, he's a president is impeached on bribery grounds, and there's a question of was there enough evidence for bribery, the court might say, no, that's up to the Senate to decide. So uh, we don't know the answer to that question, but there's some indications of what it might be, at least in extreme cases. Okay, next question. It would be cool, this is about Israel, it would be cool to have an alliance between American first and Israel first sort of groups where we can speak the truth about the various lies surrounding anti-Semitism and the work, work through that issue because it's only going to get worse and, and they allow people to talk about it. Well, first of all, you can't have an alliance between two groups of people, one of whom says America is first. And the other room says Israel is first. You can't have two firsts. You can't have a tie for first place. You can't have two gold medals. So um, I don't think it's realistic. Uh, I don't like America first. I don't like Israel first. I like human beings first and uh, civil liberties first and the rule of law first. And uh, I don't like countries first or parties first. So I, I think that's, uh, that's unrealistic. And as far as people talking about anti-Semitism, let them talk. I'm not going to censor uh, Kanye West. I'm just going to criticize him. I'm not going to censor uh, other anti-Semitic organizations. I, I let them let the Nazis march through Skokie as long as we have the chance to rebut them. Okay. Speaking of anti-Semitism, here's a question. Mr. Dershowitz defines Semite. No, I'm not going to define Semite because I think the term anti-Semitism is, is not a term that was invented by Jews. It was invented by Wilhelm Marr's uh, German anti-Semite, who was proud of being an anti-Semite. But there's no meaning to the word Semites. I'm not a Semite. Um, I'm a Jew. Um, maybe my great, 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 great grandfather, Abraham or, or uh, Moses, um, maybe they were Semites. I'm not even sure they were Semites. So the term anti-Semitism is a meaningless term semantically, but it has come to mean something. It's come to mean anti-Jewish. After all, Palestinians are Semites as much as Jews are. They claim they're more Semites than Jews are. Jordanians are, are Semites. Syrians are Semites. So anti-Semitism is an inept phrase, an inapt phrase. And I think anti-Judaism is, uh, or anti-Jewish, is a much more, and let me just illustrate that term. Okay, here's my next letter. It's a perfect illustration of what we've been talking about. So throughout human history, a group of people have been kicked out of every single place they've ever been. No, they weren't the Muslims, the Buddhists, the Christians, Hindus, etc. They were Jews. Fact. Why? What type of behavior are these people into? 
that their entire population of this planet objects to. Now, that's an example of classic anti-Semitism. There's nothing to do with the Semites. It's anti-Judaism. It's anti-Jewishness. It's anti-Jew. What he's saying is that the whole world hates uh, Jews, and there must be a good reason for it. Well, look in the mirror. That's the good reason for it, because there are anti-Jews like you who make this point, and that's why. And that disease has spread. Uh, Albert Einstein wrote an interesting letter uh, in 1944. I have it hung in my, in my office, in my room, uh, in which he says anti-Semitism is a disease and a sickness. And um, uh, it's the anti-Semite who should be looked at uh, critically, not the victim of the anti-Semitism. So I'm in favor of changing the term to anti-Jewish instead of anti-Semitic, but we all know what it means. Um, let me just get to one more question because we don't have a lot of time. Um, oh, this is this is a positive one. I have just found you on Rumble. Thank you for everything you've done in the defense of our Constitution and how you have stood fast on the First Amendment. No matter how a policy or lower court ruling might lean left or right, you do not let your personal opinion get involved. You defend and fight for everyone's First Amendment rights under the Constitution, no matter social belief or party belief. We have that founding document and Bill of Rights. Thank you, sir, and please keep up the good work. God bless you and your family. That's very nice. It's rare I get those kinds of uh, statements, but it's nice when I, I get them. And then, um, you know, I get as many on the other side, so you never know what people are thinking and what people are saying. Um, but you have your right to express your views, pro, anti, I'm not going to censor anything. I'll put everything on the air. And so uh, keep writing and I'll see you tomorrow.